you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The ChrisVossShow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for being here. Be sure to refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Uh, get them listening to the show. Say, have you heard of this show? It's on a it's on a show with a podcast. I don't know what the hell it is. It's some sort of thing. And this episode is brought to you by a sponsor, ifi-audio.com and their micro IDSD signature. It's a top of the range desktop transportable DAC and headphone app that will supercharge your headphones. It has two brown burr DAC chips in it and will decode high-res audio and MQA files. We're using it in the studio right now. I've loved my experience with it so far. It just makes everything sound so much more richer and better and takes things to the next level. IFI Audio is an award-winning audio tech company with one aim in mind, to improve your music enjoyment of quality sound, eradicate noise, distortion, and hiss from your listening experience. Check out their new incredible lineup of DACs and audio enhancement devices at ifi-audio.com. Tell people to subscribe. It's everywhere. It's all over the place, including Amazon and uh, Audible as well. <laughs> so tell them they can subscribe over there. It's free if they got that Prime thing with that with that Jeff Bezos guy. Anyway, guys, speaking of Jeff Bezos, we have a, a, a award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, Washington Post author on the, on, on the show. Interesting how I did that segue. Is that cool, Carol, that I... I don't yeah, think. any way you can get Bezos into the sentence. Good job. <laughs> do, do I? Do we both get a bonus for that? I don't know. I don't work for you, so. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, Carol. I digress. So uh, go to youtube.com for just Chris Voss. See the video version of this. Go to see us on goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. The group's on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all that good stuff. And now we'll be getting to Carol Lennig. Of course, she's written this extraordinary new book that everyone's talking about. It's on all the, it's on all the news wires and it's just got the buzz of Washington. She's uncovered lots of different issues with the Secret Service. The book is called Zero Fail. The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service by Carol Lennig. And May 18th, this baby just came right out onto print. So you'll be able to order it up and everything else. And you'll be able to uh, get that book wherever fine bookstores are sold selling books, That, as it were. Carol is a national investigative reporter at the Washington Post, where she has worked since 2000. She's a three-time, count them all, Pulitzer Prize Winner and co-author of the New York Times number one bestseller, A Very Stable Genius. She is also an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. Welcome to the show, Carol. How are you? I'm doing great, Chris. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm excited to have you. Thank you. It's an honor. Congratulations on the book. And I don't know whether I should apologize or hopefully you enjoyed the crazy front end that we just improv there. So, Hey, <laughs> any excitement level that you have for the book you know. or for your audience is a good thing. 
You're not going to get that kind of intro on MSNBC. I'm just saying. But uh, Rachel Maddow is probably a little more professional than I am. So welcome to the show. Give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs. I'm just Carol Lenig on Twitter. So it's it runs all together. Carol Lenig, L-E-O-N-I-G. And that's the most common way to find me. Some people find me on Facebook, too. I have a Facebook page with my name. And I even have Instagram mostly because my kids talked me into it. <laughs> Books do well on Instagram. We have three accounts over there. Yeah, people weird, love it. Isn't it. Yeah, books and bikinis, evidently. I and I'm, I've told them not look good in one, so they won't let me post to those to to the thing anymore. So, what motivate you? You've written a lot of great books. In fact, we were reaching out to you guys trying to get you and uh, your co-author on a very stable genius. What made you uh, decide to write this particular book? It's funny. It's a funny story because I actually wrote this book before Phil and I embarked on writing about Donald Trump and that presidency. I wrote most of it. Let me put it that way. In 2012, I like accidentally fell into the business of covering the Secret Service. It was total, like, that's not a beat people cover in D.C. Uh, Washington White House reporters, they know the Secret Service agents as basically like the either really funny or the really angry guys if you don't bring your bags to the plane on time when you're traveling president. They don't cover the agency, but they had this sort of humiliating once in a century scandal, which was that a bunch of agents were in Cartagena for a presidential visit there to South America. And they got caught getting hammered uh, while this presidential trip, they're supposed to be getting the, the, the town ready for the president, getting his security plans laid out. But instead they were partying hard hiring prostitutes, bringing them back to their hotel rooms. And when they got busted, I was asked by my editors to try to piece together what in the world happened. And if this happened, did it happen before? It was so such a big deal. So anyway, I, I started working on that. But then I found out there was something far more horrifying, which was that a lot of the agents I got to know and really respect who were sources on that Cartagena story they were worried about something much bigger, which was that they thought the president would be killed on their watch. They thought the agency was slipping. They thought the chinks in the armor were getting bigger and bigger. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the, the part of that story they didn't want to pay the hookers so the government had to step in or something? The mess, the mess really hit the fan when one of the agents seemed to be surprised at the price tag that the woman wanted <laughs> when they woke up in the morning. I think he he has told his friends he didn't realize she was a prostitute because he had drunk a lot of vodka the night before. He thought she was just coming with him to his room, but she had reminded him several times that she needed a gift and she had told him the number, the dollar figure, but it, I think something was lost in translation and he didn't realize that she wanted this much money and, and basically pushed her out the door. And when he did that morning, hustle her out and refused to pay her, you know, sex work is a legal registered business and she had rights and her rights wow. included going to the police and complaining. And that, that triggered a whole new mess of problems. That was an extraordinary story. Just the level of dumbness that, anyway, there's just the, but it, like you say, it, it uncovered like a kind of an iceberg thing, I think it was for you in realizing there was a whole lot more problems beneath the surface. Absolutely. And I, even though there have been these really embarrassing scandals that I ended up mostly breaking and writing because I got 
to know so many people on the beat. I met some people that were really breathtakingly dedicated. Just like the kind of work they do, the sacrifices they make, they're, they're a serious level of patriot. And I, I would crumple trying to deliver what they deliver. Their zero fail mission is, is backbreaking. It's mind numbing the things they have to prevent from happening. And they so far successfully have. Yeah, I think, wasn't Obama still like the most threatened president for assassinations of any president, I think, that, during his term? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Before, even before he was inaugurated, the threats, the death threats against him, and they were really violent, were four times what they had experienced for a previous president. Yeah. And they're, they're asking people to step in front of a bullet. And we've seen different things as you document in your book. So it's a huge tome. It's 500 plus pages. If I think if you count, you count the back index and the notes and stuff. So tell us how you start the book out and let's lay a timeline. Could you go through a timeline of the history of the agency? Yes. Forgive the noise in the backyard of our house. The I think the most important arc about the Secret Service is this one. Some of us were alive at this time. I wasn't, which is cool to say I wasn't alive. But uh, <laughs> that's one thing I wasn't alive for. John F. Kennedy, when he was killed, like it was such a trauma for the mm -hmm. nation. And I've come to appreciate that from other people that are a little older than me and from my parents and everybody that I've interviewed. Just a trauma. But it was a gut punch like nothing else for the Secret Service. The guilt, the shame. It led to alcoholism, suicides in the agency. Because they really, even though it wasn't entirely their fault, they definitely believed it was their fault. And they yeah. felt they carried that weight. But the good thing that happened, sadly, in this trauma of an American president being gunned down in an American city is that the director and his deputies absolutely dug in and devoted their lives to making sure this never happened again. The next big moment for the Secret Service is when they are vindicated by this incredible, rigorous training and rebuilding of the agency. Somebody tries to kill two people, try to kill Gerald Ford. One person tries to kill candidate George Wallace and succeeds in shooting him but not killing him. That same person tried to kill Richard Nixon, did not succeed. Uh, a man tried to kill John Hinckley, trying to become famous and win the love of an actress named Jodie Foster, tried to kill Ronald Reagan and came very close to killing him. And each of these incidents, even though there was this episodic assassination attempts, serial assassination attempts, the Secret Service's methods, while imperfect, ultimately protected those lives. Ronald Reagan probably is the most dramatic example because the services, the agents' hair trigger responses, which they now by this time have been trained to instantly react instead of looking over their shoulder at the sound of gunshot, which is what they did in Daly Plaza in Dallas in Texas in 1963 with Kennedy. Instead of that, no, the sound, the crack of gunfire from John Hinckley's weapon, they are instantly Tim McCarthy hurling his body upwards, throwing his chest in between the president and who's behind him and Hinckley and the incoming bullets literally takes a bullet and spins around and falls on the ground in the driveway. Jerry Parr, the head of the detail for President Reagan, minute that crack of gunfire is heard, has his hand on the president's shoulder and shoves him so hard into the back of the limousine floor that Reagan thinks his ribs have been broken and also I think hurts his jaw. But that's another story. 
The third most important moment in the Secret Service's history is 9-11, because some things went really well and were heroic on the part of the Secret Service, and some things were just failure of imagination, mistakes, failure to see how to protect the president and the White House in the case of that attack. You could say everyone in the country is guilty of having failed to envision that attack. But it's an important moment because the Secret Service after that, it should have gotten all these incredible tools and technology and more people to, again, boost its defenses for the White House and the president. It gets less. And all these other big agencies in the Department of Homeland Security that protect our airlines, our skies, our borders, they get billions of dollars, but the Secret Service just begins this slow slide of getting less and less, and its mission only gets bigger, and and eventually it's just treading water and can barely do the job. One of the things that sent a chill down my spine was when you talked about how the uh, Secret Service driver for John F. Kennedy actually braked, giving John Wilkes Booth more time to fire two more shots off. That was yeah. extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and it is amazing because he knows that he's contributed to the death of the president. It doesn't mean that Kennedy wouldn't have been successfully fatally shot by Hinckley, uh, forgive me, by Oswald that day. It's just that the break gives the shooter more chance, increases their chance of success. And cover and evacuate is the way the Secret Service operates now. Again, first sign of threat, they so quickly to get the president the heck out of there. And Jackie Kennedy actually fixated on the point you just raised, Chris, because she tells someone privately, a friend of hers, that she does hold that agent, that driver responsible. Yeah, most definitely. I, it, that was chilling to just read and the whole failure breakdown of that printing them. <laughs> Here's where he's going to be going. Here's the buildings that will be good to see very well out of, you know. It's yeah. like, what the hell? And then yeah. I guess they were partying the night before, the Secret Service agents. They were. And that was uh, something that also caused them a lot of guilt and shame because it was a much harder drinking era, the 1960s. I vaguely remember my that period and adults in my world definitely drank a lot more than people do now. But these guys were basically working so hard. They were just trying to blow off some steam. They went to this beatnik place called The Cellar. And who served them didn't have a lot of clothes. And the alcohol was spiked with grain alcohol. The cocktails was basically juice and, and 190 proof. And um, they were looking for food, but instead this is what they got. And they stayed out pretty late. The Warren Commission that investigated Kennedy's death asked a lot of questions about that that night out of drinking, saying, how can a man be in his best shape to react if he's been out late, drinking or not, been out late? And the director at the time defended his agents and said he didn't believe that. It made a difference, the life or death difference. Wow. It's, it's, you, you look at a lot of these different things, and there's so much of a breakdown. It's almost like every time a president's been assassinated or close to an attempt, it's been it's a failure on a lot of different levels uh, of things. And that's really all it takes is a catastrophic failure where everything goes wrong at the wrong moment. So true. And I think that's what, that's what really propelled me forward in writing the longer history is because agents were, in today's world, describing to me these sort of red flags 
okay, we had a jumper get in 2014. We had a jumper get into the White House in 2017 because some sensors and alarms weren't working. And we couldn't find him for 17 minutes. Really? An (laughs) 18-acre compound that's supposed to be the most secure in the world? And you couldn't find a guy who jumped over the fence for 17 minutes and ended up, you know, jiggling the east door of the mansion and walking around to the south side where there's a million doors to get into the residence? These serial failures of security reminded them the kind of serial problems and and stretched too thin quality that the service experienced before Kennedy was killed. And so that comparison of like red flags before one assassination made them tell this story to say, are we going to wait for a catastrophe before we do something? Mm-hmm. Are we going to just keep watching these red flags flare? Are we just going to keep seeing these security failures until we, until something terrible happens? It's quite extraordinary. I, I hope your book maybe prevents uh, some things from happening in the future. So you start out the book, you talk, you start out, you know, the Sur- Secret Service was birthed. You go through several different administrations from Kennedy to Nixon, Ford to Clinton. Uh, there was some interesting stories you told about between Jack, uh, John Kennedy and Bill Clinton and their philandering in the White House and the Secret <laughs> Service having to, to deal with them. And I think there was a story I heard you tell about Hillary Clinton and how she, I guess someone leaked something or other and she wasn't too happy about it. And the extraordinary relationship each of these presidents has with the Secret Service, sometimes love and sometimes hate. Oh, I like the way you put that. It's true that there are love affairs and affection between the Secret Service. And I didn't mean that as a pun. There are actual love affairs between agents and presidents in the sense of the agency loved the Bushes. That's really felt respected by them. And in particular, George H.W. Bush felt that because he had a lifetime in public service and because he was, you know, essentially an American royal dynasty, that he was used to having essentially help. And he was used to treating them like family and experts. Mm -hmm. And there's a famous line where a group is meeting with George H.W. Bush in the White House. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut short our meeting. The Secret Service is calling me. They call, I come. He does what they say. And that's a nice feeling if you're a person giving and sacrificing the amount that you are of your own life to protect a president's life. There have been a lot of tensions between presidents and the Secret Service. The Clintons, it was particularly tense because in those early days, the Clintons were distrustful of the Secret Service detail they were assigned and believed that group, they rightly believed, that group was very fond of the departing Bushes and concerned that they weren't so careful with the private moments of the Clintons. A story eventually leaks that Mrs. Clinton has thrown a lamp at her husband during an argument in the White House. Uh, I don't know if she did throw a lamp or not. I know the story was reported, and she believed that it came from the and banished them to the second floor. Forgive me, to the first floor, away from further away from the residence to maintain more privacy. Problem is, agents believe. If you're being pushed away from the principal, they're more in danger because yeah. it's going to take you longer to cover and evacuate them in an emergency. Yeah. it's And I think they knew about the Monica Lewinsky thing, didn't they? Some of them definitely knew <laughs> that a very pretty 
Buck's intern was spending a lot of time coming to the White House, especially oddly on Saturdays. And that oftentimes the president's secretary was letting her in and coming out to the gate to avoid logging in the White House official records that um, this person was entering the building. And that was curious to them. And remember, Secret Service officers and agents who protect the president and the White House, they have some time to gossip on their downtime. <laughs> when, they're, when the president's in the Oval Office, they have a little bit of time. And it was a topic of discussion among them. Ultimately, uh, a huge Supreme Court battle over this. Some Secret Service officers and agents were forced to testify about what they saw and to provide information that proved that Clinton had lied when he said he'd wow. never spent any time alone with Mrs. Lewinsky, Miss Lewinsky. Yeah. I think the same is Trump with, uh, true of Trump and Melania. <laughs> they never spent any time together in the White House. Anyway, I'm just... <laughs> Why that that piece of me is funny. So this is really cool. You go through uh, the whole history of all the presidents. You cover the Obama years, the Trump years, and uh, the Bush years in your chapters. And you're really thorough in in uh, what goes into it and everything else. What were some other stories that stuck out in you in the book that you think readers were really like? Just sticking on Clinton for one moment. One thing that's new that I learned in my book. Think this is salacious, but for the agents, it was really a security issue. When he was a candidate and the nominee for president, and on his way to winning the election, the polls showed that he was way ahead. President Bush, who was suffering in a bad economy at the time, he was the presidential nominee. He was still governor of Arkansas, and agents were responsible for protecting him. They arrive, a new detail arrives to protect him at the YMCA in Little Rock, which is where he would jog pretty regularly in the mornings and then he would uh, said to be working out and getting a shower and then he'd go to McDonald's and then go get driven back to the governor's mansion and do some work. But the agents found that when they got there, they were told not to go into the room where he was, went into the building. They were surprised. Agents are used to either screening the people that are with the president or physically being with the president and in this case, the candidate. And they asked their bosses, what's going on? And the supervisor said, give it a rest. But it turned out, uh, the supervisor said, look, if you're not going to let it go, I'm just going to tell you, he's in there with a woman. And this really bothered the agents because they weren't morally making a decision about whether Clinton uh, should or shouldn't be meeting with women in the YMCA or having a relationship outside his marriage, which he obviously had been having. What they were upset about was they were responsible professionally for what was going on the other side of that door. They're supposed to protect a guy who's about to become president, and they can't do that from on this side of the door. Yeah, that's that's quite extraordinary. And they have the same problem with John F. Kennedy, people coming by just wandering by the i remember the what was the famous pool scene where the film where he's in the pool with all these women and you're just like yeah something's up there i don't know what's going on <laughs> yeah yeah you know that another story that's a little more whoops a little more current is the i just want to give like a heroic story which is from 9-11 the agent is the agency doesn't have a lot of women agents but there was one I learned something about. The women are, are a little bit hazed in the Secret Service to act like one of the guys to get along. There are very many women. There are not very many women supervisors. 
And this one woman who had become the number two on the president's detail, this was when George W. Bush was president on 9-11, she learns that belatedly, unfortunately, the message got delayed, but she learns, as does the director of the White House, that two planes are inbound for Washington minutes after the second tower has been hit that morning. And those two planes are not talking to the FAA, and the FAA liaison to the Secret Service is essentially saying, they're coming towards Washington, we have to presume they're hijacked and their missiles intent on hitting something in downtown Washington. So, of course, the White House is presumed to be a target. So is the Capitol. She gets that message, and the head of the detail, who happens to be in that day, and all the other deputies agree that they are going to need to go to the presidential bunker underground, under the White House, to meet with the vice president and continue to run the government essentially underground on a terrible day, a frightening day, when many people are wondering what's next. She knows that she can't go to the basement. She can't go to the bunker underground because the communications nerve center for the Secret Service is on a roof at the old executive office building looming over the White House. It's, it didn't occur to me until later as I read more about her story, Becca, Becky Edinger. She was going on a death mission. If a plane was going to come and hit the White House, the command center, she was going to be devastated and, and blown through. Mm-hmm. But she went there because she knew that was where she had to go to communicate with all the rest of the Secret Service officers and agents and make sure they were briefed on what was happening. Make sure that nerve center was operational. About five minutes before a plane ultimately hits the Pentagon, a plane is seen coming over the treetops in downtown Washington. She gets an alert at the command center and all the people with her in that center. And she tells them, no judgment, if any of you want to leave, now's the time. Wow. Do, you know, go. I, I, we understand. Everybody's got families. No judgment. Nobody leaves. Wow. And uh, they brace for impact. And wow. a group of officers scurry up to the rooftop of the White House, also a place that's a death mission if the plane's for them. But they go there to help see what's happening. And they see the in a few seconds more, they see the flames and the smoke coming from across the Potomac because the plane has actually come back, doubled back, and hit the Pentagon. Wow. And that was uh, Flight 93, United? I think that's right. I, yeah. I, do, I unfortunately confuse the flight sometimes, but yeah, it's the yeah. one that's the Pentagon. Yeah. Oh, there you go. The, it, I, think it 90, wasn't... I think 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's right. Penn, that was in Pennsylvania. Yeah, what an extraordinary thing. I think they have an anti-aircraft gun up there now, don't they? On top of the White House? I think that's classified. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> but the no, it's, it's quite interesting. This all the different stories you map this out. What is what do we need to do with the Secret Service to get get the funding it does and the amount of stuff? I was really surprised too. You cover how much they do. Like they're covering NFL games and stuff. It seems like maybe their purview should just be the, the asset, if you will. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people agree with you there, and you've discerned an important part of the book. I wrote it because 
all these agents are worried about what's going to happen if they keep treading water like this, if they keep having a larger and larger mission without the souped up technology and special tools they need. They're stuck in the 1900s, not the 21st century. If they keep having additional missions, everybody that you and I are talking to right now, most of them think that the Secret Service protects the president, the vice president, and their family. No, <laughs> the Secret Service protects 42 people, vice presidential grandchildren and stepchildren, presidential grandchildren. It protects cabinet members. It protects national security officials you don't know the names of. They protect Super Bowls and Olympics because they were put in charge of events that would likely be the targets of terror where people gather. Of course, they're in charge of protecting inaugurations and other special events like that, but that makes sense. They're also in charge of their legacy mission, which was the, the reason they were created in the 1860s in the first place, which was to root out counterfeit money and to now they investigate cyber crimes and hacking. They were the first uh, agency to realize that Russia, Russian intelligence agents had hacked the White House non-classified email system. So their mission is huge and nothing about their tools or their budget has kept pace with that. So a very senior Department of Homeland Security official I interviewed said they were just pleading for somebody to reduce the size of their mission, but give them what they need to do that mission. Because as they said, right now they cannot do what they're assigned to do. One other surprising aspect of your book that I hadn't heard about is that they really, they really t- took a, a shine to Donald Trump and his and the whole masculine and the whole law thing and or law and order thing, and and actually were signaling and sometimes talking about support for this president, and pushing through that barrier of maybe where they should have stayed at arm's length. Is do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So the service, the Secret Service, has also prided itself on being above politics. The line that the agents use is the people elect them, we just protect them. Mm -hmm. And it's got a nice sing-songy way about it, but it's really serious. And the seriousness is they're not rooting for any particular party. They're not rooting for any particular president. What they're trying to do is make sure the democracy is stable and sure by protecting the office. And there have been times when they've edged a little towards being for a president, as they did when they loved George H.W. Bush, uh, as they did when they some group of them were working for Nixon, a law and order president, by the way. But they really crossed a line that shocked many of the alumni and Secret Service supervisors and formers that I interviewed when Donald Trump came along, because they let the agency be used as a political tool, a tool and campaign rallies while COVID was spiking around the country, which put a lot of officers and agents out of commission. Either they contracted COVID or they had to quarantine because they were exposed. It also was deployed to remove, forcibly remove, peaceful protesters from outside the White House who were protesting the killing of George Floyd in June of 2020. And the Secret Service is extremely well versed in the rights of protesters and their First Amendment rights to assemble because that's what they deal with in, on the White House front steps every day. So this shocked them to have to beat these people with rubber bullets and 
shields and tear gas or the chemical version of tear gas. The service also, the Presidential Protection Division got very close to Donald Trump, liked his message, liked his conservative agenda, which is not shocking. Most law enforcement agencies trend a little conservative. But this went a little too far, even by that sort of law enforcement standard. Agents on the protective detail and supervisors in the agency social media to promote the conspiracy theory that the election was rigged, to suggest that Donald Trump had been denied his rightful second term, and to question whether Biden was legitimately elected. One Secret Service supervisor even said, even called the rioters on January 6th patriots and cheered. That was a little chilling to their colleagues who shared that information with me and to their former alumni network who wondered what's going on. Uh, You can't protect democracy if you're questioning whether the current president-elect is legitimate elected president. Yeah, that's how we end up in a whole sort of coup situation, too. If you get either the military to rally around him or the Secret Service to protect him, and you're like, there's, we were all sitting around going, I I don't know, they're either going to drag him out of the office, they're going to... Or they're going to camp out and, and call it a call a regime regime holdout or something, and just be like, "No, we're not leaving. The Secret Service is here, and you'll have to take us too if you want us." <laughs> we're starting to really wonder there at those last days how that was going to go down. Rosa Brooks wrote in the Washington Post about the frat boy culture of the Secret Service. She called she entitled the thing. Is that one of the issues that maybe? needs to be addressed with the Secret Service? Do they need more women, less of the frat boy culture? Maybe there'll be less hookers not getting paid or something. I think from our conversation that I think that most of the agents and officers are incredibly dedicated, responsible people. But there is a subset of the Secret Service that parties hard. They work hard, and so they decide that they need to party hard. And there's been a long tradition that, you know, Director Mark Sullivan tried to deny in his congressional testimony after the whole Cartagena scandal. But it's been going on for years of agents thinking they could live a double life on the road. The perks of of being a handsome, trim, presidential detail agent was that you were going to have a lot of women in different ports and you were going to get to party when the president's plane's wheels went up. When he's not here, we're going to have some downtime and some fun. set of the Secret Service has used the secrecy and the lack of transparency of the agency to abuse um, that cover and to to take advantage. And, And we have to do something about that because if you're bringing prostitutes back to your room and you can't remember their names the next day, then as the mission the zero fail mission to protect the president who's arriving that afternoon. Yeah. These guys are exemplary heroes in, in, in what they do and, and the mission they have to stand in front of those bullets or as planes are coming in. Yet the one thing that I thought of though, when you had been telling the story of the hookers during the Obama administration was that was the only time they were caught. That's right. Now, my book, I could steer you to the correct pages, but my book goes into a lot of detail about all the times they weren't caught. I mean, yeah. All the times that something nearly identical or worse had been going on. And one thing that's funny is the director tells people in Congress that he's shocked that gambling's going on in the casino, but 
just weeks earlier, the service had been alerted to a member of the president's detail who'd been using presidential trips to hook up with couples that were strangers. That was his thing. Just here before Cartagena, an agent on a trip with Obama through Asia, several country tour, got so drunk in a brothel and didn't emerge for so long that they had to leave him behind and they had to go to great extent, a great effort to replace him. He had a special skill set for the trip and they had to leave a, a supervisor behind because it was, they found it dangerous to leave an agent behind in a, you know, random Asian country. For all of this, you know, there is a series of trips that that, that agent that we talked about who refused to pay the prostitute, he later admitted under questioning he had done this in Italy, he had done this in Russia, he had done this in Ireland. So not exactly a one-off. <laughs> as soon as I heard the story, I'm like, yeah, this has happened before. This is just the time they got caught. So with uh, January 6th, is, was that under their security purview of the Secret Service? And should it have been? It wasn't. It was the Capitol Police's show, if you will, because it was their property, their complex, their security protocols. The Secret Service did have a role there that day, however, because they were responsible for Vice President Pence. And that created some intense drama and tension, which we report a little bit in the pages of the Washington Post, and which I also mention in, in Zero Fail in the ending of the epilogue. But those agents were also pretty heroic because they scurry and get Pence off the Senate floor just as rioters are charging through a window on the west side of the building. And nobody thought the windows and doors were could be crushed through, but they were. And the agents scurry, get Pence, his wife, his daughter, his brother, and two of his staffers into a hideaway office seconds before rioters come up to the second floor landing where they crossed in front of the Senate chamber to get out. And the detail leader for Vice President Pence is pretty concerned um, about the safety, even when they're in that locked hideaway. And he basically comes to Pence three times and says, we got to get out of here. I got to get you out of here. Pence turns him down two times and the third time says... There's no, the detail leader says, I'm not giving you a choice. We are going. It's not wow. safe. Wow. So they have a job that day. It's quite extraordinary. These guys, I do feel bad for them. They should be able to blow off some steam. What is interesting, though, is we worry about who sleeps with the president or who sleeps with politicians or maybe might be having affairs if they're not sleeping with them because we're concerned about being compromised and, and compromised, as, as Russians like to say. Our former president, Putin, used to like to say. There's concern for that, but yet these guys have access to the principle, the asset, whatever you call it, and yet they're running around with uh, compromised security, maybe, possibly? That's a concern, isn't it? It absolutely is a concern. And to your earlier point, Chris, about, oh, I wonder if this must have happened before, Secret Service agents, almost all of them have a top-secret security clearance. So like an intelligence officer, right? They're, they're handling some of the most secure things you can deal with, how we pre prevent a nuclear attack on the president, what we do in the case of a nuclear attack, where the president goes, where we store the president in case of an anthrax, a release, all these things. So secret. 
and so important that they be kept secret because we don't want our enemies knowing how to get the president or what our plans are for protecting him. But in the case of described in the, the book, after Cartagena blows up in the Secret Service's face, there is a top supervisor on President Obama's detail who has been living a double life. And that double life has meant that he's been lying on national security clearance interviews. Wow. In those interviews, you're supposed to tell immediately if you've had any contact with any foreign nationals for exactly the reason you mentioned, compromise. A foreign government could use any kind of tool, including a woman, to try to get access to the president or presidential security information. So you're supposed to at least notify your employer about this kind of contact. This agent had not done it for years, as many as 15 years. Holy crap. And had not been honest on, you know, a pretty important security form. When he was found out, he was so upset and so despondent, he killed himself. Wow. Because being a Secret Service agent was everything to him. Yeah. The secret that he kept was too off to face. Wow. It's it's chilling. It's heartbreaking. And hopefully your book sets forth more people in Congress will look at it and give them better funding, maybe a narrow purview. We think, I, th- I think most Americans think of the Secret Service as a, as a bunch of heroes. They're vaulted in movies and everything. Clint Eastwood, I think, still works for them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> from that famous movie. But yeah. uh, anything more we should, you want to plug out on the book before we go? I would just say, I hope President Biden listens to the agents who've risked their careers. Some of them lost their jobs for talking to me. I hope he listens to their sort of call, their wake, their alarm. They're trying to ring through me, the chinks in the armor of the Secret Service. There's always been this tension between presidents and the Secret Service that protects them. And the tension is the president doesn't really want to look like he needs protection, and the president doesn't really want to spend money on that it looks like it's all for him it Mm -hmm. looks indulgent it looks wasteful and presidents need to realize that these are public servants who've given so much at the office to deliver on this mission let them do it properly don't think about it as something that is potentially politically embarrassing to you think of it as an agency that serves a public mission for our democracy and needs the tools to do the job. Yeah. And the last thing we need is the horror of another John F. Kennedy or something like that, where, where the nation mourns and more, I think we're still healing from nine 11 and being opened for that extraordinary event and stuff. Wonderful book, huge tome. Congratulations, Carol, on that. Give us your plugs so people can order the book up and uh, learn where to find you better on the internet. I'm Carol Lenig, which is on Twitter, Carol, Lenig, all one word. I am at the Washington Post. If you type in my name into Google, you'll quickly find my stories at the Post. And Zero Fail is published by Random House. I've loved working with them. And you can buy it at any of your independent bookstores. You can buy it on Amazon. Your choice. I think it's a pretty good Father's Day book. I've heard from a couple fathers that they are enjoying it. If you're a buff, uh, a history buff, You'll enjoy this. It's a history book. It's also a little bit of a thriller. 
It's got a little bit of R-rated. Keep that in mind. Salacious stories from the Secret Service. Uh, who do you see? Is uh, you see anybody in the movie for this? <laughs> I don't know. Christian Bale. Maybe. I'm thinking Christian Bale somewhere. Oh. So no Clint Eastwood this time around? <laughs> I I think he did it. He's done it already. Mr. Eastwood is 90 or something. I was reading 90, 95 or something. God bless him. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the show, Carol. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for spending the time and uh, sharing your insight in this uh, brilliant book that you've written. Thank you. Chris, thanks for the great questions. It was really fun to talk to you. Thank you very much. Check it out, guys. Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Just out on hardcover. And you can get it in audiobook and Kindle, too, if you want. May 18th, 2021, just came out. You want to be the first one to pick it up. Thanks so much for tuning in. Go to YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss. See all the videos we have there. Go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss. All the groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those different places you can see us. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Be good to each other, and we'll see you guys next time.